This is an audio recording of the Fintech Nexus weekly news show. The show is streamed live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Fintech Nexus news team and a special guest discuss the most important news stories of the past week. Now let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Fintech Nexus Weekly News Show. My name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fintech Nexus, coming at you today from my New York studio. No LaGuardia Airport for me, thankfully. Um, and join as you always. Your Denver studio. Your Denver studio. You said your New York studio. I said New York. I meant, I meant Denver. <laughs> Todd Anderson is in our New York studio. How are you doing, Todd? Yes. I'm well, Peter. How are you? I am well. And uh, Joan, are you in your home office outside of D.C.? I am. I'm in the D.C. studio, I guess. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. So just, uh, Jonah, quick 30 seconds on the Claris Group before we get into it. Sure. Claris Group is uh, an advisory firm focused on the future of financial services. We work with uh, fintechs and, and banks and payments companies who are trying to do something new and interesting. So All thanks right. for having me back. My pleasure. Great to have you Always back. Always great so to have you. So, yes, busy news week as always here. We're going to start off with Silvergate. Today was not a good day for Silvergate, particularly if you're a shareholder. <laughs> um, so Silvergate basically said um, late yesterday that they're going to miss their March 16th filing deadline, which is already an extension. Um, and now they've basically said a statement saying they're going to have more losses. It's not looking good. They may have difficulty in continuing as a going concern. That's, you don't like to hear that from uh, from your bank. Um, and uh, their stock was down predictably um, a lot today, 58% or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, they've had all kinds of uh, crypto firms come out, distancing themselves from their bank, from the bank they used to work with. So it's been, a, been an interesting day for Silvergate. Uh, you know, Joan, I'll start with you because you've been, you've been following the, the crypto space for a while. What, um, what do you make of Silvergate's? challenges here yeah i mean it's um you know it's hard to see how they get through this at the end of the day um you know they had built a business almost entirely around you know their 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 network and the network uh was really powerful because if you were a big player in crypto you really wanted to bank with silvergate and be a part of their silvergate exchange network which facilitated 24 7 dollar payments um that that was powerful as long as everybody else was in it, and I think now that uh, folks are 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 you know making other arrangements and and leaving the bank, uh, that that starts to fall apart quickly. And there wasn't much else for Silvergate to fall back on. That was really that was really the the core of the business. And I think you know what's interesting here is they had it, it, it's not like they had taken a bunch of crypto deposits and gone out and made you know thirty year mortgages with them, right? They were holding treasuries, um, and I think what they just failed to anticipate was that they had correlated risk that, um, you know, it the, the crypto markets uh, might go south, uh, you know, at the very same time that interest rates were going up and that, um, you know, those, those two things might be correlated. And if they happened at the same time, it would be really, really bad news because all those treasuries that they held and would have to sell for liquidity purposes would be uh, worth less than when they bought them. So I think that's... Uh, it was in, in some sense a perfect storm, although you know, with the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight, I'm sure we can uh, we can say that they should have seen some of it coming. But it's um, hard to see where they go from here. Right, right. There was a. Uh, I'd be curious your thoughts on this 
Jonah, there was a story I think a couple of weeks ago that mentioned, you know, part of the the failure of some of the Silvergates of the world was, or can be tied back to Ray. Obviously, Silvergate made their own decisions, but can be tied back to regulators in that they haven't, you know, been as forward thinking on crypto, and and a couple of the smaller banks took outsized risks that if regulators were more accepting of crypto, maybe the risk would have been spread to a lot more banks and the impact on individual banks might have been less. Um, And maybe some of the FTXs of the world don't happen because they would have adjusted their risk policies to what banks' risk policies would have been. And that maybe some of what we're seeing today maybe not have been as dramatic. Um, You know, what are your thoughts on kind of that perspective? And obviously Silvergate's made their their bed they didn't have to do any of this but um you know it does there is some truth in 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 that thinking um and i was curious what your thoughts were on it yeah well i think obviously if you had um you know sort of crypto deposits and payments activity spread more broadly throughout the banking system would have been less concentrated in any one institution i think the challenge is what i was what i was getting at before which is the, the magic of the Silvergate offering was that it offered uh, the potential for 24-7 payments in dollars, which is not something you can achieve across banks in the United States broadly these days, right? So I'm not sure how you replicate that. Uh, Signature had their own version of it and didn't run into the same problems, partly because Signature itself is much bigger. So the crypto business right. is much smaller as a percentage of their overall activity. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a little bit of what bank, uh, bank regulators are thinking about now, and you've seen them issue statements saying, you know, we're really wary about businesses that are heavily concentrated in crypto. Um, and I think that's, that's, you know, pretty clearly pointed at the silver gates of the world for whom this was, you know, most of the business. So I think, I think there was a reason that activity concentrated in really just a couple banks. Um, you know, it was really a workaround, uh, the, the lack of a broadly available 24 uh, seven, real time payments function in the U S but, clearly left concentrated risk. Right, right. Okay, we need to move on though. We're going to talk more about crypto uh, later in the show, but now I want to talk about Klarna because they uh, released their financials this week and obviously the massive buy now, pay later uh, company out of uh, out of Sweden that has lost a lot of money, shall we say, in 2022. <laughs> they, um, you know, like they, they obviously provide financials in their local Swedish currency. Them and Stripe are just trying to figure out who can lose more money. In right, them. right. So anyway, net loss of, of, of just around a billion US dollars equivalent, uh, 47% increase from 21. Um, at the same time, this is the FT, FT, FT put this in their headline, the CEO, um, Sebastian Simiotkowski. I know I messed up that name, but uh, <laughs> he, he's, uh, he's got a pay increase, um, a 35% pay increase, uh, despite all these losses. Um, he's saying the company's going to start making profits again in Q, by Q3. They, were, they used to be profitable before they went on this growth spurt, and they really tried to attack the US market, and they've been successful in the US market. They have, they're everywhere. And um, they've done, they built a pretty sizable business um, here, but um, can't seem, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, I mean, I'll be surprised if they can make profits by Q3 with that massive of a loss in uh, 2022. I, I'd, be, I'd be curious what happens to the CEO if they aren't profitable in Q3, because isn't the 35% pay raise a bet that they will be profitable yeah. by yeah, Q3? And if he, if he doesn't make that number, um, 
you know, what, what, what is that 35% increase for? Um, because obviously they were profitable uh, for many years and they said, all right, we're going to invest in the business and we're going to invest in new markets. Obviously they probably went way above their skis like everyone else did with hiring and, and everything in, in 2020 and then 2021. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that'd be quite the turnaround from losing a billion dollars to making money. Jonah, thoughts? Yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, we don't, you know, they're private companies, so we don't have a lot of granular insight into what's driving those losses. And I, I suspect it's more than just their investments and growth in the U.S. at this point. If you look across the BNPL sector, the Klarna model is largely that, you know, zero interest pay in for model. And um, that's really hard to make work in a zero interest in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world with you know, interest rates that are now not zero with the credit market, you know, credit, credit sector that's deteriorating a bit. Um, so uh, I suspect they're seeing losses on the credit side. I suspect their funding is challenged and um, I, you know, they're going through a little bit of what the other BNPL companies are going through. Um, but obviously that's a guess because I haven't seen their actual financials. Right. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, one day there'll be a public company, I'm sure. But, uh, and we'll get a bit more insight. But anyway, let's move on to a public company that is going through its own challenges, Goldman Sachs. They, um, they had their invest, investor day this week, um, their second investor day. And the CEO, David Solomon, was under fire a little bit. There was no kind of big announcement that got investors excited. In fact, the stock ended down after their investor day. And uh, they did say there, you know, that this big foray into consumer finance that we have been following since day one here at FinTech Nexus uh, back in 2016, back before day one. And um, looks like that uh, that's over. And they're looking now to divest potentially, talking about selling Green Sky, which they bought, I'm not sure when, it was like a couple of years ago, um, I think now. And um, talking about maybe getting rid of other parts of their consumer finance business, um, you know, investment banking is what they've made their name on, and that's still their core business. And this other parts don't don't seem to be as important as they used to be. Todd, what do you think? I mean, I wonder if everything plays out the exact same, but David Solomon doesn't say some of the stuff he said when he first came in about being or becoming a consumer finance business, and just you know, focused on the, their core business, but still had the consumer finance division, everything. If the investor sentiment is the same as it is today, because overall it was not a large part of their business. Um, I think it was losing it money. Was, it was losing yeah. money. I mean, it's obviously it, it lost money. And part of it was he came on and wanted to remake Goldman Sachs. And, um, you know, it's going to be a consumer finance business and they're, they're, you know, going to be all this forward thinking stuff that they're going to do. Um, and so he's kind of eating his own words in his vision. Um, and I think part of it is, is his own fault for saying yeah. all that. Um, because yeah. if you look at everything in, in what Goldman does, it wasn't the large part of their business by a long shot, but you know, he said it was, it was going to be a core to their future. So. Yeah. I think you're onto something with the expectations there, um, Todd. And I think, um, you know, probably gets probably gets more attention in some ways than it deserves. I guess the, you know, the question was always, how do you fit this into the broader strategy? What's where's the synergy between this business and and the core Goldman Sachs business and franchise? Um, and I think they've, you know, they've made a handful of bets, uh, you know, 
broadly speaking, under the consumer umbrella, and it looks like they're shedding some of them. I, you know, the interesting one is Green Sky, which does seem to uh, sort of make sense for for a bank like Goldman to own. It's essentially just an origination platform of, yeah. uh, you know, that they can leverage in different ways. But um, you know, maybe they're maybe that's the valuable piece that they can sell, so they got to sell it. I don't know. So it'd be interesting to see. I think. You know, I, I hope people don't take the lesson from this, that it's impossible to innovate within larger institutions. But that's that's clearly something people will will take away from this. I, I just think this was also asking an awful lot. You were asking a, an institution that didn't have a consumer bone in its body to to, to, to build a consumer business and um, and do so in a challenging, competitive uh, fintech environment. So, um, I, again, I think it was there were some unique challenges here and I hope people don't, you know, broadly sort of take away the lesson that gee we should not try anything new ever right no that's that, that's hopeful. i wonder if some of goldman's own reputation played into this in that you know people see them as a high net worth you know smart guys on the block um type firm and to come down into consumer and then you know go away from maybe the super high prime you know type borrower and the the high net worth uh, or the high earner uh, of that category to go into, you know, the everyday consumer was probably, uh, you know, too much of a leap to begin with. Um, yeah. You know, Chase obviously serves 60 million customers. And so do some of the other banks in terms of, and they serve customers of all stripes. Goldman was serving a specific customer and going down into consumer was probably like, I'm not going to go to Goldman if I have all these other options. They're, they're yeah. not for me. <laughs> and they wouldn't have even done this. I don't think but for the financial crisis and they sort of became a, uh, a bank, they um, or a retail bank, and they had they had a retail banking license. They thought, well, what are we going to do with it? Let's do something. And yeah. Anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about Marketa um, because they had earnings this week, and you know they're a fintech that's doing reasonably well. Of course, they're not making money, and fintechs don't make money. But they are, <laughs> I should I, I, I'm just because yeah fintechs are going to make money at some point, but they have they exceeded analyst expectations on the revenue side. Um, they had lower losses than expected, and this was the first one from their new CEO. Um, how do you say his name? Todd Simon? Uh, is it Caliph? I believe so. Yeah, and so we we we've got him as a, as a speaker in our a keynote speaker at our event coming up here in May. Um, which Pete, we're excited. You're, you're giving away inside information. I know, but that's a if you watch if you watch the news show, you get inside information. <laughs> let's just say that. Well, that um, announcement we, we, we haven't formally announced him yet. So um, yeah, that, that that's going to happen. So anyway, good solid earnings report, and um, I think you know I think Marquetta's seems to be uh, doing pretty well. I mean, this is the type of fintech that, um, you know, is can weather the storm probably better than others. Um, and, you know, embedded finance is only increasing uh, in its usage and the amount of, um, you know, everyday brands that are relying on embedded providers is, is only increasing exponentially across all sectors of the economy. So, I mean, I, I think they're set up well. Uh, and I think it's, it's the same, the area of FinTech, I think that has the most promise, at least as we sit here today. Yeah, I think Todd's right. They're very well positioned. Um, you know, embedded finance, banking as a service is fairly crowded these days. Um, and it's not, it's not clear that everybody who's making a run at it will, you know, ultimately come out the other side, but there is, you know, there is a decent amount of room. It's a growing market um, in particular, as you look beyond supporting fintechs, you know, supporting 
SaaS companies and bigger tech companies um, in the sort of true embedded finance uh, uh, mode. And I think, um, you know, you've seen the other Bass players start to add card issuance to their uh, to their offering. And so now Marketo, which grew up as a as a card issuer, is adding embedded embedded finance and banking services. It just uh, it just makes sense. So we'll we'll start to see these players compete more with each other. And um, uh, but there's uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there, um, I think. And, you know, it's um, to your point, Todd, there's just more and more interest in it. I mean, um, you know, we're talking to people all the time who are, you know, vertical SaaS providers who are figuring out how can we embed and layer in, you know, the payments and account uh, functionality that inherently is tied into activity on our platform, but that we don't provide directly today. And, you know, there's only really um, one way to do that now, and that's to plug in through somebody like a Marketa or yeah. one of the other banking as a service providers. So we, we think it's a super exciting, interesting, growing space. Yeah, and that's sort of every company becomes a fintech type thing. If you've got a platform that you can monetize the the payments from, that, that you know, marketers got. There's a lot of runway. That's my point in what they're doing. Yep. Anyway, I want to move on to um, Better.com. They've been in the news um, not for, they were in the news a lot last year when they had their challenges, um, but now they're in the news for an innovation, which I think is actually pretty cool. Um, they launched the Equity Unlocker. Um, and it's, they, they've got a, um, a beta client in Amazon. The way it works is you work for some of these tech companies and you have a lot of equity. In fact, this article d- described the fact that there's a good chunk of uh, millennials that actually have, uh, have equity in the companies that they work at. And um, this is you know, what they basically say. You can pledge your vested equity as collateral for a down payment on a home. They'll value it at the time of the home appraisal. And it's, um, you know, you basically use this, use your, you use your equity, which you normally just have to sell before you actually even get a loan. And now you, you don't have to sell it until you actually you know, close on the house. And I think it's a, it's an innovative product. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it makes a ton of sense to try to give people the ability to access some liquidity on top of what's otherwise you know, an illiquid asset, but does have value. Um, I think there are certainly risks here. Uh, you know, couldn't tell from the piece whether, you know, how this was structured and whether it would be possible for companies that, you know, uh, issue warrants or RSUs or other sorts of instruments as opposed to sort of pure stock. But, um, you know, those are uh, those are sort of details. And it's probably just my old lawyer brain starting to churn. I think it's, uh, it is an interesting uh Interesting offering, and I'm sure there are a bunch of companies out there that can take advantage of it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, others try to others try to do something similar. I think the the home ownership question of people, uh, whether they're small or you know small business owners themselves, and they don't take like a every two week paycheck, or um, you know people like this who are who are getting stock. Um, finding alternative ways to get them into homes when they actually have the ability to make payments on those homes uh, and own a home, I think is, is only uh, a good thing uh, because there's plenty of people that make plenty of money, but they don't report it in a typical way. Uh, And this goes for even gig workers and stuff like they accounting for these various types of professional uh, careers that um, is outside of the norm. Uh, I think would be um, get a lot more people in homes uh, than uh, is today. 
yeah. because I've been through the mortgage process a couple of times. And if I didn't get paid every two weeks, it'd be such a headache. Right. And, you know, it's interesting that they started off with Amazon. Obviously, Amazon's one of the biggest employers of them all. And, yeah. um, and you know, it seems like they're going to be going one by one. There's, it, it, I imagine, as to, to sort of to Jonah's point, the, these things have to be structured probably unique to each company. Uh, yeah, it's, you know they're starting with big guys, but sign of things. Think it outside the box, at least. Yep, indeed. Okay, um, moving on now. We uh, we want to talk about Lending Tree and upgrade. Uh, Lending Tree uh, announced that they have a new Visa card. Not that big, not that much of a big deal, but this one is a little different. This is up, you know, the upgrades um, is powering this card, and up, upgrades credit card. If you if you've been paying attention. It's not a typical credit card because each month your balance is converted into an installment loan, which means your higher minimum monthlies are the minimum monthlies are higher than a typical credit card. But it also means you avoid the debt cycle of just having paying off your credit card over years or decades. And um, they so they've got they've this is the first time upgrades gone and sort of white labeled their technology and they've got Lending Tree on the hook. Lending Tree has 25 million customers. That's a, that's a decent number. So they're rolling this out. And um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of what upgrades done. I think it is innovative. And I I think this is something that uh, you know, I, I mean, their first foray in doing it as a white label. I think uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how that goes. It kind of plays into the two previous stories we just talked about, which is, you know, embedded finance yep. and then, you know, unique ways to offer a traditional product, which is a traditional credit card. But the way in which they calculate and do uh, monthly payments is different. Um, and, you know, going into embedded and, and offering the services as white label, which is you know, kind of giving some uniqueness to it as well. So, you know, all three of the, the last stories are kind of playing into each other. Yep. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the sort of term loan in lieu of a line of credit uh, sort of revolving facility takes off as um, something that consumers like because there's sort of, you know, transparency and clarity in the sense that I'm, you know, know that I'm paying it down over time. I, it, you know, I, I kind of hope it does. I think it's an interesting, innovative product. Um, so we'll have to see. It's uh, a little bit like, you know, a little bit like some of those BNPL models, just a, just a different way to to do what folks were doing before. And, and yep. you know, if it's, if it's really transparent, maybe, maybe it'll catch on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, 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 the thing they've got against them. I remember talking to Renault about this when, right when they launched, it says, are people going to want to have a much higher minimum monthly payment? That's the question. If you've been used to paying the minimum or paying not very much, you're probably not going to want the upgrade card, but because it's going to force you to pay double, triple, Quadruple, this may be what you were paying. Yeah, but if you look at over time, if the one balance comes down by a, a, a if not significant, at least a decent amount, mm. and you look at the other card and you're like, I can't get ahead of myself. Yep. Then maybe you, you know, you reassess that uh, in a year or two. Yep. I mean, I, and I think it is, it's a better product than the credit card product. I'm convinced of it. It's just, I don't know if the public yeah. is, I mean, whether, I don't know whether it's going to remain a niche product whether it's going to have wide adoption. I hope it has wide adoption because it would be much more, much more healthy for the country uh, if it did. But anyway, staying with credit cards or credit card companies, maybe credit card networks, shall we say, um, Visa and MasterCard are in the news this week. And uh, they have there was an article in Reuters saying they are hitting pause on crypto. And you know, Visa 
you know, I remember we had uh, saw the quote from Kai Sheffield that we talked about earlier this year, I think, <laughs> on the show, saying Visa is yep. a crypto company. And, you know, Kai, crypto, Kai Sheffield is the head of crypto at Visa. And so, of course, he's going to say that. And Ron Shevlin made the point that I don't know if everybody is going to be on board with that statement at Visa. But um, seems like Visa might be a crypto company, but they're, they're, you know, they're pausing things. I mean, obviously, they, they got – I mean, they had a partnership with FTX, which obviously – Went, uh, went by the wayside in November, and it was only recently announced. That was uh, that was not a good thing. But you know, there's there's plenty of crypto credit cards out there, crypto rewards cards. I mean, Upgrade has a crypto rewards card, and uh, lots of you know, you know, just traditional credit cards where you get instead of getting frequent flyer miles, you get you know rewards in cryptos. So, crypto is kind of here to stay, as it seems like in the credit card space, but. Visa and MasterCard seem to be taking a cautious approach. What, what are your thoughts, Jonah? Yeah, I mean, the, the networks are going to respond to demand coming from their issuer or their acquirer members, right? And um, merchants who want to do something related to crypto or issuers who are looking to satisfy demand from their end customers. And that demand was a lot higher a year ago than it is now. And to your point, Peter, there's a lot already out there in the market. So a pause, you know, a pause just means we're not doing, you know, we're not rolling out new products anytime soon, which, you know, probably makes sense in the current environment and probably reflects demand out there. Um, but, you know, I will have to see uh, if, if crypto markets pick back up sort of whether demand resurfaces. I, I doubt very much that Visa, MasterCard, other payments networks are, you know, shelving the projects they've had around, you know, crypto and blockchain technology, because, you know, they've been very sensitive to thinking very far out in the future about how their networks could potentially be impacted by those technologies. Um, I'd, I'd be shocked if that work's not, not ongoing. Right. Right. Do you think any of this or part of this is due to, you know, the regulators just being very aggressive right now and, you know, they just don't want to run a fa- I mean, in addition to what you've said, which may obviously makes a lot of sense, but, yeah, they're probably getting some signals from the regulators, like, you know, we're 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 being quite aggressive right now, and let's not go, uh, you know, too far, whoops, too far out from where you guys currently are. Yeah, I'm sure that the regulatory environment is impacting, you know, in particular their issuer members and thinking about what kinds of products they want to offer to their customers, and and for the networks themselves, thinking about, you know, what are they gonna, what are the standards they're gonna hold their issuers to. And offering those products, so I, I'm, I'm sure that that's playing a playing a bit of a role. Right, right. Well, that segues nicely into our next topic, which uh, I'm putting. This was an opinion piece in Forbes, and I, I wanted to put it in because it was sort of a counter argument to what we've been saying on the show for for months now. And this is basically the, the article was: uh, you know, crypto companies must stop poking poking the regulators in the eye with a stick. <laughs> Great headline, and basically saying that you know the the SEC have made some calls and they've said things like, you know, some tokens are securities and, but then Coinbase continues to trade them on their platform. And, uh, you know, basically saying we should be collaborating on now, now in, the, in the defense of the crypto companies, sometimes they're really trying to collaborate with the regulators and the regulators are giving them a cold shoulder. But I wanted to put this, mention this because I feel like we have been bashing the regulators on this show for months and, uh, you know, maybe we should be trying to be a little bit more. And you also talked about Custodia, you know, suing the Federal Reserve. Maybe that wasn't the best approach, um, but 
you know that's um that, that's that that's what happened and they she got re- her um you know custodia got rejected but you know like Jonah, what are you what are you talking when I mean, you i know that you're you're deep in this space i mean are we are we being too are the crypto companies being too aggressive with the regulators yeah i think look i'm not gonna you know opine on custodia or any other individual institution oh. in terms of how they engage with the regulators because i don't i only know what i know but um you know, I, I do think that the crypto sector generally has had a hard time figuring out how to engage with regulators. And I think they've basically taken a pretty hard line approach, thinking that, you know, they could, you know, hold holding out for, a, you know, something of a, of, a, of a new of a new framework, if you will. I mean, if I go back five, six years, I remember asking companies, hey, why don't we go in? Let's go ask the SEC for a no action letter to do what you want to do. Um, and, you know, understanding that there are some frictions between the way you want to operate and the way the securities regulations are currently written. And they would say, well, I can't do that. That's going to take me like two years. And here we are five, six years later, and we don't have a lot of regulatory certainty. I, you know, I think there's I think neither the regulators nor the nor the industry itself has really been all that constructive in putting concrete ideas on the table, really identifying where the you know, where the challenges and the frictions are. And trying to plot a path forward, so I've been a little bit frustrated with both, and I, I think I've aired that mm-hmm. that view on your show before. So I, you know, I, I I don't know. I think the frustrating thing for the industry now is, in light of everything that's happened over the last year, how do they, how do they even get a seat at the table here? Right. Um, if uh, if we're going to actually be moving forward with something here, so it's 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 um, it's going to be a little bit more challenging going forward to have that sort of constructive dialogue. Mm-hmm. I think of the two, I. I think the crypto industry made the bigger flub, so to speak, because, you know, the regulators aren't going anywhere. The crypto company doesn't have to operate. Like if, you know, the the way in which I think they came in and there was two things I think they did wrong. One was we're going to revolutionize everything in five years, um, which clearly didn't happen. And two was that, the stance they took was that we don't need the regulators. You know, we can build fast, we can build strong. And there's a community out here like, you know, my keys, my crypto, all this stuff that I think played into let's take a certain stance against regulators. Not all the companies, there's plenty of companies that, that wanted to probably interact, but there was also this movement of decentralization and against the current established financial system, which I think played into some of these companies like, all right, we're going to poke into, to take the, the term from the story, we're going to poke into the regulator because that's where the base of our users are. And I think it was a mistake. Um, and I think also the speed at which they thought things would happen would be a mistake. They needed to take that slow build approach, like kind of like custodia did. And I think they were unfairly treated, but, um, others didn't. And I think they're, they're kind of dealing with that today. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we are out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Um, thank you, Jonah. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks Jonah. Thank you, Todd, as always. And of course, thank you to the listeners and the viewers. Uh, Appreciate your attention. Um, We'll be back same time next week, 5 p.m. Eastern time, streaming live on YouTube and LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you can also catch us after the fact, obviously, on either of those platforms. Before I go, though, quick plug, Fintech Nexus USA happening in May, May May 10th and 11th in New York City. It's going to be huge. Grab your ticket, fintechnexus.com. See you there. And thanks again, everybody. Bye. See ya.